You've just gotten married and moved into your new place. You didn't have enough money to purchase a home, uh, so you rented a small one-bedroom in the city. Your in-laws come over, and all they can talk about is how small the place is and how unsafe the neighborhood is. So what do you do? All you can do is bite your tongue and nod in agreement. A big project at work has fallen apart. Your boss is is ripping into you and your team for failing to make some key deadlines when in fact it's his fault. He's the one who made unrealistic promises to the clients. He's the one who was poor in leadership and communication with your team. You knew it was a bad deal from the beginning, but you don't say that. Instead, you remain quiet and you don't say a word. Your parents are so mad at you for damaging the car. They call you spoiled and irresponsible, but what they don't know is that you actually let your friend borrow your car because they were in desperate need of it. But she doesn't have any money to pay for the repairs. So what do you do? You take the blame and you keep quiet. We've all had moments in our lives where we chose silence over confrontation. Silence over self-preservation or self-justification. And in our passage today, we're going to see Jesus choosing silence as he stands trial before the Jewish leaders. Now, let me make it very clear. The goal of today's sermon is not to argue and get you to always choose silence in confrontation, okay? Uh, That's not the goal. It's not be like Jesus and be quiet. That's not the point of today's message. Instead, I want us to understand why Jesus chose silence at his trial. Why he chose silence, why he took this path as he stood before his accusers. And I want us to see how his captivity leads to our liberation. If you have your Bibles, please turn to our passage for today. It's Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 65. Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to to 65. It's a bit of a longer passage, but we're going to read about Jesus's betrayal, his arrest, and his trial. I'll be reading from the ESV, and may God bless the reading of his holy word. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against or as against a robber? with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. 
Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Amen. The word of the Lord. As we work our way through this text, we're going to look at three things. First, the arrest of Jesus. Second, the abandonment of Jesus. And finally, the trial of Jesus. We're just going to follow the natural progression of the passage. We'll begin with the arrest, then the abandonment, and finally, the trial of Jesus. Well, Jesus has just finished his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is resolved to drink the cup of God's wrath. He wrestled with God's will in the garden and finally said, Lord, not my will, but yours. And while he was still speaking with his disciples, Jesus, I mean Judas, shows up as his betrayer. It's the middle of the night and Judas hasn't come alone. He's come with the temple guard. Now, uh, one thing about the temple guard, you need to know they're not Roman soldiers. Okay, They're not Roman soldiers under the authority of Rome. Rather, they're Jewish men who worked for the temple. They were employed by the high priests, the scribes, and the elders. So think of them kind of like private security versus local law enforcement. That's what the temple guards were doing. They were working under the Jewish authority. Remember again, it's the middle of the night. It's dark and some of these guards may not know who Jesus is or what he looks like. So Judas tells them, I'm gonna give you a sign. I'm gonna give you a sign. Judas goes up to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, and greets him with a kiss. It's so treacherous. It's so duplicitous. It's so insincere. But this act actually emphasizes the depth of Judas's betrayal. And this is where our culture actually has coined the phrase, the kiss of death. Okay, you've, you've all heard that phrase, the kiss of death. It's come. It comes from the Bible. It comes from Judas's betrayal of his Lord Jesus. So the guards identify Jesus. They see him. And armed with clubs and swords, they seize him violently. In the Greek, this word seize, it's used over and over again in this passage. And it's to arrest with violence, physically. Things escalate quickly. And so one of Jesus' followers, he pulls out his swords and he strikes the chief servant, uh, the servant of the chief priests, and he cuts off his ear. If you read the Gospel of John in that account, John tells us that that was actually Peter. Peter pulled out his sword and struck this servant, one of these temple guards. If you read the story of Luke that has this passage as well, Luke tells us that Jesus commands Peter, put away your sword, and he immediately heals the ear of this servant. Jesus calms everyone down. 
And he says, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. What is Jesus saying? He's asking them, why are you treating me like a criminal? Why are you arresting me in such a hostile, physical, aggressive manner? I have never incited violence. Jesus never taught revolt or rebellion. He was no threat in that sense. In fact, his ministry has been out in the open since the first day. He has taught. He has preached. He has ministered in broad daylight. Why this aggression? But he agrees to go with them. And he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Brothers and sisters, when you read passages like this in your own devotions, in your own study, I hope you wouldn't just gloss over that and keep going to the next verse. I hope that you would come to God in his word with questions and saying, what scriptures are you fulfilling, Jesus? What are you pointing to? What are you talking about? Well, Jesus is talking about Isaiah 53, 12, where God describes the Messiah the one who will save Israel as the serving, suffering servant. This is what he says. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This verse tells us, that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors, that he would be treated and counted as a criminal, though he was innocent, though he was without sin. Jesus knew that. He knew that he was the suffering servant, that he had come to fulfill Isaiah 53. But just think about that. Have you ever been wrongly accused? Have you, been, have you ever been wrongly judged for something you didn't deserve, something you didn't do. How humiliating, how frustrating, how painful was it? Magnify that because that was Jesus' experience. Jesus, truly the only innocent man to live in this world. He allowed himself to be counted as a criminal, treated as a transgressor in order to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus fulfills another very important scripture. He points back to Zechariah 13, verses 6 to 7. This is what the prophet Zechariah says. If one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Charles Spurgeon the great British preacher, when reflecting upon the death of Christ, he wrote this. He said, the narrative of our Lord's grief is harrowing to the extreme. One cannot think long of it without tears. It is enough to make one's heart fully heartbreak, fully to realize the suffering of such a one, so lovely in himself and so loving towards us. Brothers and sisters, as you hear the words of Zechariah, as you consider our Lord Jesus Christ, does your heart break? Are you moved to tears? Think of the wounds of Christ. As he was flogged and as he was beaten. Think of his hands and his feet as they were nailed to the cross. Think of his side as he was pierced by the spear, his head as it bled 
from the crown of thorns. And if we were to ask him, Jesus, where did those wounds come from? Jesus, how did you get them? He would respond, these wounds I received in the house of my friends. These wounds I received in the house of my friends, not merely because of Pilate, not merely because of the Jewish leaders, not merely because of the Roman sent uh, soldiers, but because of my friends, I bear these wounds. This is what he called his disciples. You're not merely my servants. You are my friends. Brothers and sisters, Jesus laid down his life for his friends. Though they would deny him, Though they would abandon him, Jesus died for them. He was wounded for them in love, and he was wounded for us. He bears those scars for us as his friends in love. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And as he was struck by the sword, the sheep scattered. Jesus said these very words at the Last Supper, the beginning of chapter 14, just flip a couple verses back. And it's he's breaking bread and dining with them. He says, one of you here tonight, you will betray me. And when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. But each and every disciple, they said, no, Lord, we will stay with you. We will be faithful. We will abide. We won't scatter. But no, they all abandoned Mark emphasizes this point throughout the passage. Verse 50, Mark sadly tells us, and they all left him and fled. When the, when the temple guards seized Jesus, they all left him and fled. What is the, who is the they that the, Mark is referring to? Mark's talking about the disciples. They are the disciples. All of them who swore allegiance to Jesus they all fled. There's an irony there. Peter, when he heard these words of Jesus, he said, even if all fall away, I will not. Even if we have to die with you, I will remain faithful to you. And each of the 12 disciples, they all affirmed the same. They all pledged their allegiance to their Lord. And just hours later, when Jesus is, is arrested, they scatter. They all left him. They all fled. This is even highlighted in verses 51 to 52. We actually have a really odd scene, a really odd scene. It's unique to the gospel of Mark. You won't find it in Matthew, Luke, or John. Commentators joke that this is the one and only uh, streaker scene in the Bible. It's like, it's, you can giggle, it's kind of weird. Don't worry, you're not inappropriate. Yeah, like we have a streaker in the Bible. It's so weird. A young man was following Jesus. And he's there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the, the guards, they seize him aggressively, violently. And as they grab his linen garment, he slips out of his garment and he runs away naked. He runs away naked for his life. He runs away from Jesus. It's one of the passages that are so odd that even skeptical scholars, they say it's so weird, it had to be true. It must have been an original statement. You see, there's no reason. Some, some people think that, yeah, uh, the Bible is written, you know, like kind of by Christians who added stories and added elements about Jesus. And they added the miracles. They wanted to make him more than he really was. So there's a lot of skeptical scholars of the Gospels. But when they study this passage, they say it had to have been original. 
right? There's no reason why somebody would have like added this story, made it up and put it in there. But what do we make out of it? Well, in the Bible, nakedness, it's a sign of shame. It's a sign of disgrace. Remember Genesis in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve, they fell in sin. They realized they were naked and what did they do? They covered themselves in leaves and twigs and they hid from God. They tried to hide from God because they realized they were naked. They were shamed. They had now fallen and sinned. Well, here, this naked young man, he takes it to another level and he runs away from the guards. He runs away and abandons Jesus in his nakedness, in his shame, in his fear. Church history tells us that this naked young man may have been Mark, the author of our gospel. They think it was Mark, the author of our gospel. And this was actually Mark's way of inserting his experience, his story into this gospel narrative. Now just think about that. That's weird. That's weird. It's a surprising way to insert your story in the gospel. If that was me, I would not have done it if, like that. If it was me, I would have painted myself as like a faithful disciple, right? Somebody who was heroic, somebody who was righteous and strong. But instead, Mark reveals himself as a coward. He reveals himself as a coward. And in doing so, he teaches us a very important lesson. Everyone has failed Jesus. Everyone has failed Jesus. None is righteous, not even one. Peter the rock has failed him. Mark the writer of this gospel has failed him. John, the beloved disciple, has failed him. It wasn't just Judas. All abandoned him. We need this truth, brothers and sisters. Because there's, there, there, there's a powerful thing that happens when we embrace this truth. That everyone has failed Jesus. It actually unites us. It unites us as a body of Christ because the church is not a family of perfect, good, moral, strong people. Actually, we are reminded that the church is a family of failures. We are a collection. We are an assembly of failures. We've all run from God in our own ways. How have you done that? We have all made promises to God and we have all broken our promises to God. We have all been unfaithful. We have all sinned and fallen short. But because of this shared experience, because of this shared truth, because we can all share in our failure, we can also share in our Savior. We can also share in our hope. We can also share in our confession. And this is the second lesson that we must learn. As all the disciples have abandoned Jesus, as all have failed Jesus, we are saved in Christ alone. If you read this story, there's only one person who stands before trial. There's only one person who is arrested. There's only one person arrested. There's only one person who is condemned. Only one of Jesus's family and his people will go to the cross. It's not Peter. It's not James. It's not Andrew. It's not John. Only Jesus goes to the cross. As the righteous son of God, he alone drank the cup of God's wrath. He alone paid for our sins through his death. He alone was raised from the grave. Do you see that? 
in the fact that all of Jesus' disciples abandoned him. They left him alone. We actually have this great gospel truth that we are saved in Christ alone, by Christ alone. We must never forget this gospel truth. You are not saved by Jesus plus Peter, Jesus plus the immaculate heart of Mary, Jesus plus your obedience, Jesus plus your morality or your performance or your fidelity. No, you are either saved by Christ alone or you are not saved at all. Do you see that? Do you see that? Let's move to our third and final section of the sermon, the actual trial of Christ. Now, if you compare this trial with the norms of, G, of, of the Jewish law, okay, uh, if, you, if you study uh, the Old Testament and uh, the, the, the way that the Jews had set out their procedures for trials, you'll see that this was a completely unjust trial. First of all, there were not supposed to be trials at night. Their trials were supposed to happen during the day. But in order to expedite the verdict to Pilate, they held it at night. Second, in the case of capital punishment, a second session of the trial was to take place to ensure a fair trial, okay? If you were going to put someone to death for breaking the law, the Jews wanted to get it right. You couldn't do it with one session and one trial. You had to have a follow-up. Makes sense, right? I mean, these are people's lives that are in the hands of this trial. They said, we're gonna have, you have to have a second one. You have to have a follow-up. Make sure you have it right. Jesus received no such privilege. Thirdly, these types of trials, they weren't supposed to convene during the Sabbath or during festivals, okay? Once the Sabbath began, you're supposed to honor the Sabbath, do no work. That means no trials. Secondly, if there was a festival, and this was the time of the festival of the Passover in order to worship God and focus on him and celebrate him, they're saying no trials. There's no condemning people. You're not putting people to death. Just focus on God and the meaning of that festival. They broke that command. Fourthly, the trial was not, uh, or the trial was supposed to take place in the temple. Where does this take place? In the high priest's house. Peter is in the courtyard of the high priest, trying to listen in, trying to see what's going to happen to Jesus. They're in the upper room of the high priest. That's not where this trial is supposed to take place. Fifthly, the penalty for blasphemy should have been stoning, not crucifixion. Everything about this trial was wrong. Legal term, the jurisprudence, right? Was all out of whack. I had to kind of like, I had to look it up. Uh, I had to look it up. I, I wasn't sure uh, what that word meant, but I figured, okay, that's what it meant. Everything was done wrong. So why did the Jewish leaders break their own laws in the trial of Jesus? Why would they do this? Why would they do everything in the wrong ways? Verse 55 tells us clearly they had it out for him. They were seeking to put him to death. These Jewish leaders weren't seeking justice. They weren't seeking truth. They were seeking to kill Jesus. So they brought in false witnesses to testify against Jesus. But none of their testimonies were consistent. They were all saying different things. The law demanded that at least two witnesses had to have corresponding testimonies to issue a guilty verdict. None of their stories lined up. They brought in witness after witness. Story after story, and nothing was lining up. And despite all of these wrongs, Jesus remained silent. Despite 
being wrongly arrested, wrongly accused, wrongly tried, being lied about over and over again by seeing this court of fools, I mean total jokers, make a mockery of what's supposed to be a holy, God-fearing process. Jesus doesn't say a word. Now he could have, he could have. Jesus knew the Torah better than any scribe or Pharisee. He could have corrected them. He could have told them that they were breaking the commands and laws of God. He could have shamed them. He could have argued himself out of this trial, but he doesn't. He doesn't say a word. Finally, out of anger and frustration, the high priest cries out, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And Jesus responds in affirmation. He says, I am. His words allude to Daniel chapter seven, another very important prophecy about the coming Messiah, the ancient of days. And Jesus declares, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And when the high priest hears this, when the Jewish leaders hears this, he tears his clothes and he charges Jesus with blasphemy and they all condemn him to death. Why this reaction? Why this reaction? You see, Jesus, he chose Daniel 7 very intentionally. He could have referred to himself as the greater Adam. He could have referred to himself as the greater Moses or the greater David, the king of kings. He says, I am the alpha and the omega. He could have said all of those things, but instead he chooses Daniel chapter seven as the son of man coming in power on the clouds and glory. Why? Because he's reminding these Pharisees, these scribes, these priests, you judge me now. I am the ancient of days. I will come. I will return to judge the living and the dead. You judge me now, but wait and see. Behold, fear the Lord. I will come. I will return in power and authority, and I will judge you. You will pay for your sins. They tear their clothes. They condemn him to death. See, brothers and sisters, in the silence of Jesus, we actually see the mission and heart of Jesus. Remember in the beginning, I asked, why the silence? And the silence shows us his heart. The silence shows us his resolve. The silence shows us his mission. In our country, we have the Fifth Amendment as a legal protection. You guys know what it is. You've seen any cop show or arrest. It's, it's the right to remain silent. Hopefully you've never heard this directly, right? It's the right to remain silent. It protects us from having to testify against ourselves, from having to incriminate ourselves. The Fifth Amendment promises all American citizens due process in the court of law. So for us, if we're ever arrested, we can exercise the right to remain silent, to protect ourselves, and to preserve our lives. But why does Jesus stay silent? He remains silent for the exact opposite reason. Not for self-preservation, but self-sacrifice. Not to hide his guilt, but because he was truly innocent. He remained silent, not out of contempt, but out of love. Have you guys ever done that? Your parents are yelling at you and you're so angry that you don't say anything back. It's contempt. It's not love and respect. It's contempt. That's not what Jesus was doing. 
He remains silent not to save himself, but to save others. He remains silent so that he would go to the cross, so that an innocent man could take the place of guilty men and women, so that he could die for us on the cross. He remains silent so that the scriptures could be fulfilled. Do you see that? Such a paradoxical love, devotion that Jesus has to obedience to the Father and for our redemption and salvation. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of Isaiah that Jesus himself fulfills through his silence and through his ministry. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Do you see that? That's why he remained silent. So that he would be pierced for our transgressions. That's why he didn't say a word. So that he would go to the cross and be wounded and crushed for our iniquities. That's Christ. That's his heart. That's his love. That's his devotion for you, brothers and sisters. Do you see this? Do you know this? Do you believe in this good news of Jesus that if you repent and believe in him, you will be saved? That he is your substitute. That he is your savior. Brothers and sisters, I want to do more than just talk about Jesus' love for you. As we close, I want to ask you, have you received it? Do you know it? And have you been changed by it? How do you know if your life has been transformed by this kind of sacrificial, substitutionary love? It's actually very simple. The answer to this question, how do you know you've been changed and transformed? It's very simple. The way, because the way that you love begins to look like the way Jesus loved, okay? That's when you know you've been changed by his love. That's when you know you've truly been filled and transformed by his love because you begin to love like him, the way that you love yourself, the way that you love God, the way that you love others, even the way that you love your enemies. It changes. You see, Peter, he was changed by the love of Jesus, by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When first he was threatened, when first he saw Jesus seized, what did he do? He pulls out his sword and he strikes that temple guard. And that tells us that Peter didn't know what it meant to love like Jesus. He didn't know a self-sacrificial love, a self-denying love. His love was still self-protection. His love was still to fight for himself to fight against his enemies. Jesus heals him. Jesus goes to the cross. He dies and is raised again. Peter's absolutely transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And what does he do later? You see Peter as a man who is afflicted, wounded, who suffers 
with his Savior. He puts away his sword, and he loves like his Savior. Why do you love God, brothers and sisters? The church is filled with people who love God in order to get things from God. We worship him. Why? Because we want more money, health for our family. We're looking for love. We're looking for friendship. We're looking for earthly blessings. And so we worship and we give, and yet we do it all as mercenaries. Brothers and sisters, the love of Christ is not for selfish gain, not for selfish ambition. It's out of selflessness, humility, to serve. You see, we see self-preservation all throughout the high, the chief priests, all throughout the, the works and the motives in the disciples. The chief priests, they wanted to preserve their power. They wanted to preserve their influence and they saw Jesus as a threat to what they thought was theirs. And so they wanted to kill Jesus. That's self-preservation. They wanted to cling to their power and influence. The disciples thought that they loved Jesus, but the moment that their life was threatened, they all fled. They actually were in it for their own security. The way of Jesus is not self-preservation. It's self-sacrifice. It's a self-sacrificing love. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more you experience and understand his love, you begin to love others in that way. You see, when you understand who Jesus is, he actually shows us how to wield power. The scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they thought that if we have power, we gotta grip it. We gotta crush everyone who threatens our power. But Jesus, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, he shows us how to use our power, our resources, our strengths, and our gifts. Use it to bless others. We are blessed to be a blessing to others. Brothers and sisters, if you are here and you have much, you have influence, you have resources, my question is, is how are you using that to imitate Jesus? How are you using your resources to put the love the sacrifice, the servant heart, the kingdom of Jesus on display? Or are you following Jesus to preserve your own goods, resources, and benefits? The other thing that we see in Jesus is if we find ourselves in a season of loss, affliction, pain, and sorrow, we see in Jesus Christ that hope is not lost. You and I, we may be going through a season of turmoil, pain, suffering, and darkness. And yet in Jesus, we have hope. We learn how to suffer well. We learn that in this life, we may not have, we may experience sorrow, but we are promised an inheritance, a treasure, a glory that is incorruptible. Do you see that? Do you believe that? That's the love and promise of Christ. That's the power of the gospel, brothers and sisters, today, if you've heard the word of God, if you've seen the love of Jesus, he who was wounded for you, his friends, he who went to the cross for you as his friends, would you receive his love? Would you thank him for his love? And would you leave this place imitating and putting his love on display? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much 
we are amazed again by the matchless work of your son, Jesus Christ. We confess and we testify, God, that that no one can accomplish what he did. No one can do what he did as he took our place on the cross, as he drank your cup of wrath, as he made atonement for our sins. We confess and believe that only Jesus was able to accomplish this work. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we worship you today. We want to worship and acknowledge you alone. We thank you for remaining silent as a sheep before its shearers. We thank you for being wounded so that we might be spared. For being wounded out of love for us and calling us your friends. Lord, I pray for every brother and sister here today. May those words stir our hearts. May it grieve us as we grieve our sins. And may it heal us as we realize that Jesus, you have loved us to the point of death. Lord, help us to leave this place today imitating you, following you, and loving like you. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.